Hello, appreciators. I am your host, Andrew, and today I am joined by, well, nobody. See, Evan, our normal co-host, lost all his money in crypto. He got swindled into a Michael Mann cryptocurrency called ManCoin, and unfortunately it went under. Uh, No, uh, actually, Evan is away on vacation, and I am recording this myself because I realized the last two weeks we haven't been able to get a podcast out, and I felt kind of bad that the feed has been dead for this long, and I wanted to give you guys, our listeners, something uh, before we start ramping it back up again. Uh, I am off this coming up week, and Evan and I are going to knock out some podcasts and some videos and hopefully finally get around to that Batman commentary we've been teasing. Um, I have also just finished a new essay that I am going to start editing soon all about the man who fell to earth. Um, I just finished that novel and I have a lot to say about that, so hopefully I can get that out soon. But today, I thought I'd talk about Something we haven't really touched on on the podcast or even on the YouTube channel that is one of the biggest topics in the world, and that would be Marvel. Uh, Evan and I don't really talk a lot about Marvel, one, because everyone else is talking about it, and two, honestly, our you know, kind of diehard interests lie elsewhere. I, I like Marvel movies. I have nothing against them. I, I watch them all in theater, but... They're not my biggest passion, and so many other people do so much better talking about them, but I thought, hey, I've had this video essay kind of script sitting in my Google Drafts for a long time about what I believe is the best Marvel movie and why, and I've never gotten around to it. It's kind of long, and it would be a really hard, intensive edit, and I thought, well, hey, I've been having this sit around on the back burner, so why not bring it to you guys in audio format and kind of give it some kind of purpose? So. I know there are a lot of different opinions on what's the best Marvel movie, what's the best phase, we've got the new TV shows coming out, and uh, I thought I'd give you guys my perspective. And for my money, the best Marvel movie is probably not what you'd expect. Like like I said, despite enjoying Marvel's recent films, Shang-Chi, No Way Home, Multiverse of Madness, I actually really enjoyed Multiverse of Madness. I thought it was a blast. I love Sam Raimi. Despite all that, I'd like to contend that Marvel's best movie is behind them. All the way back in 2017, to be exact. But before we get into any of that, I need to ask a question. How does someone talk about Marvel in 2022? Seriously, this isn't a rhetorical question. Besides politics, Marvel is the one topic I avoid talking about around other people, especially online. Praise the studio and you're in danger of being painted as a sycophantic fanboy eager to see Marvel successfully monopolize the film industry like Ego the Living Planet spreads offspring across galaxies. Or you criticize the studio and you're just a snobby critic or a jealous DC fan. Are they capitalistic theme park rides or are they an unparalleled success of interconnected storytelling? It's exhausting. Look, I like a fair amount of their movies, like I said up top. I pay money to see them all in theaters. I want their movies to be good, the same way I want any movie I see, especially a movie I pay to see to be good. I have no agenda, seriously, I have no agenda against them. But I do have my criticism. Sure, 
I want their movies to be entertaining and engaging when I see them, but I don't root for the studio itself as if they're a sports team. They don't need to win or whatever. Their logo isn't sacrosanct to me. I, I get it. Anyway, all this to say, I want to talk about Marvel without divulging into a typical binary argument as it so often does, you know, love or hate. Even with the mixed reactions to, like, Eternals that came out last year, Kevin Feige and the rest of his team are not going anywhere anytime soon. They're going to keep marching forth with their phases until it's no longer financially viable, and we're all going to keep talking about it. So let's go against my personal conviction, and let's talk about it. I don't normally like to talk about it, but I feel like this is a safe space. I'm, I'm among my fellow appreciators. We're not haters here, so I feel comfortable kind of diving into it. Uh, hopefully we can talk about it in a way that isn't a pissing contest about who's more of a true fan or for the purposes of discerning who's with us or against us. When it comes to us appreciators talking, I'd rather just shift the focus to sharing our perspectives and sharing what we love and find funny, all for the purpose of connecting with and learning from each other. So, for my perspective and according to my tastes and my sensibilities, the best Marvel movie is... Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Look, I know this isn't exactly an underdog. It's not like The Incredible Hulk or Thor 2. It's not one of like the hated movies, but it doesn't get enough love. I can understand all the reasons why it doesn't have the mass appeal of Endgame or the first Iron Man, but what I find most interesting and why I believe it makes a valid case for being the best is that Volume 2's strongest aspects lie where most Marvel movies fail. A lot is said about Marvel's ability to tell superhero stories across various movie genres, and while there's something to that, personally I see Marvel as its own genre. Genre, after all, is just a category that shares similar form and subject matter. Despite creating dozens of movies with various different characters and settings, Marvel has kind of repeated itself a lot, specifically in terms of plot, structure, tone, and visuals, which is one reason why the studio has been so successful. I mean audience members know exactly what they are going to get when they buy a ticket. But at the same time, many of those repeated elements can be found lacking, or at least in my opinion. The three big, generally agreed upon weaknesses of the MCU are visuals, villains, and focus. Oh, I almost had three Vs. Please do not hate me, all you alliteration fans. But anyway, visuals, villain, <laughs> villains, <laughs> visuals, villains, focus. See, this is why I need a co-host. Evan, come back. I am talking all over myself. But when it comes to visuals, villains, and focus, where all the other movies have kind of failed in one, two, or three of those categories, or all three at once, Volume 2 crushes all of these, which is why I find it to be such a breath of fresh air every time I revisit it. Okay, let's refresh your memory. Let's start with visuals. I don't want to belabor this point since this is talked about ad nauseum, especially on YouTube. Film is a visual medium, so having your movie pleasing to the eye and aesthetically engaging ensures viewers will want to remain seated and focused for two plus hours, and also more likely to re-watch the movie at home, which you know I rarely want to do with their movies. I see all their movies in theaters, I usually have a good time, but I don't ever really re-watch them when I'm at home. And this goes beyond just desaturated colors. It involves framing, blocking, and composition too. Yeah, it's been said to death, but we all know Marvel movies often look kind of flat and dull, 
Kevin Feige apparently holds up a paint swatch labeled concrete gray in the edit room during the color grading process. And it doesn't help matters that they often choose airports, interstates, roofs, and parking lots lit under overcast skies for their action scenes. Now, a lot of this is because that kind of flat, monotone color scheme allows them to play with the image in post-production and, and add characters in later and to make it kind of smooth and, and make the special effects blend. But it, the trade-off to that is the image is kind of flat and not dynamic. But when it comes to James Gunn's sensibilities, his visuals have personality. The more I watch Volume 2, the more I'm drawn to scenes like the, the scene in Volume 2 where Yondu is whistling his arrow all across that uh, that spaceship, the internal part, and you, and you follow it. It's like one long tracking shot, and, and you see um, Yandu's arrow go all the way through the spaceship, and it's edited really well, and it plays with the music awesome. The frame is fully utilized and playful. Wide-angled long shots lead to punctuated close-ups of a goon's face for comedic effect. It's not just basic coverage of a quick-cutting, shaky-cam fight. Gunn tries to get as much out of the visual premise as possible, like following the arrow on security cams or cutting the lights to show the arrow dancing across the screen like a glow stick. There are lots of other great scenes like this throughout the MCU. I mean, that Ant-Man train sequence I thought was really inventive and clever, and I love the Black Panther casino fight. But overall, I don't think any other MCU film consistently takes advantage of the visual possibilities of the movie medium quite like volume two. Now again, this is something that comes up a lot, especially on YouTube, and I don't wanna kinda harp on Marvel's lack of visuals. So with that being said, let's move on to the villain. And I think this is where volume two really shines. There might be some pushback here, and I get that. I'm not saying Russell's take on Ego the Living Planet should go down in the pantheon of great film antagonists. He's not as compelling on screen as Heath Ledger or even Loki, but what makes Ego stand out compared to the other Marvel villains has less to do with performance, which is good, it's very, very fine and good, and more to do with how his character functions in the story. Most Marvel antagonists solely exist to serve the plot. They are merely an external obstacle to the hero's goal and rarely have any personal or thematic connection to the protagonist's internal struggles. This is how Marvel can cast great talent like Lee Pace, James Spader, and Corey Stoll to only receive lukewarm results. They're just generic obstacles, opposing forces with no meaningful connection to the hero's growth. They might as well just be giant brick walls. But truly effective villains have desires and goals that are intrinsically connected to that of the protagonist's internal needs. Funny enough, Ronan, the villain from the first Guardians film, proves to be a great comparison for this distinction. In Volume 1, Ronan has no connection to Peter Quill or the other Guardians other than that he wants the orb Peter stole, and also because Gamora's father said so, Thanos, that's it. He's also a flat character with no internal contradictions or obvious character traits. Ronan is the worst part of the first Guardians movie, and I love that movie. I mean, if it, if it were not for that characterization, it would probably be like a 5 out of 5 movie for me. Ego, on the other hand, has the same desire as Peter, a meaningful genetic familial bond. They both want to find purpose through their lineage. 
At the beginning of Volume 2, Peter has grown a bit disenchanted with his newly found ragtag family. They bicker and quarrel and cause sovereign-sized headaches. As alluded to by Aisha, Peter also is still longing for an answer to the mysterious qualities of his ancestry. Maybe that will fix him, he thinks. Maybe that will help him unleash his latent potential. Likewise, Ego reveals he's been searching for Peter this entire time. As a celestial, Eagle is... <laughs> Eagle. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I definitely need a co-host. Um, as a celestial... Ego is an internal consciousness with the power to manipulate matter, but all this intelligence and power only created a solipsistic dilemma. He was alone, and he curbed his loneliness by finding meaning in creating life, creating offspring. Now here he is, standing before Peter as the answer to all his questions and his longings. This is what Peter has been waiting for the whole time. Do you see how making Ego's goals and history so intertwined with Peter's sets up their potential conflict to matter more than someone like Ronan, who is basically just someone competing for the same MacGuffin, same plot device? Speaking of which, we soon learn Ego's talk about finding love and connection through an offspring was just a cover for his true motives. What he really wanted was not an offspring to connect with, but instead an offspring with enough celestial power to help himself terraform new extensions of himself throughout the universe. Ego's name was appropriate. He just wants to grow and grow and grow. Oh, and he killed Peter's mom because she was a distraction. Kind of a breaker for Peter. Because of all this, Ego's presence in the film forces Peter to confront a much-needed truth. That true love and friendship is more important than blood or lineage. Peter had been spending this whole time in the first movie longing for an answer to who his father was, and, and in part two, wanting to find that connection with his dad, and he starts to choose that blood connection over the new family he found in volume one. That's his character growth. He has to choose between saving his imperfect but meaningful guardian's family or sticking with his father figure he looked so long and hard for, the figure he thought would make him whole. The thing Peter thought would make him complete is actually the thing he's going to have to sacrifice in this film, and that's what makes this villain character, though maybe the performance isn't the greatest of all time, or the characterization isn't the best, it matters in the story. He has to kill the very thing he spent his life searching for. And by the way, so does Ego. This sort of conflict is much more emotional and engaging than a villain who only functions as a physical threat. Ego's characterization is also what makes Yandu's final moments so moving. Peter learns that family is more about function and action than it is biology, which helps him realize he's had a daddy all along in Yandu. The conflict, character arc, and emotion are all tied together, which culminates in a more meaningful moment of catharsis and resolution. Great villains do more than just come across as entertaining or powerful. They have to challenge the hero's assumptions and beliefs, forcing them to enact change within themselves. Heath Ledger is great, but the Joker is ultimately effective because his actions thematically challenge how Bruce sees Gotham and his role within it. Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger is memorable because he directly forces T'Challa to acknowledge Wakanda's past sins and his current position on Wakanda's closed borders. Again, great villains impact not only the protagonist character arc, but the theme of the movie. They should all be tied together, and it helps the resolution have more meaning, have more weight, have emotion behind it. 
And it's this kind of narrative cohesion that leads me to focus. The third in our three main weaknesses that happens not to start with a V, but is with an F. Focus. Marvel has always had its eye on the future. When everyone else was focused on telling self-contained trilogies, Marvel wanted what the comics had, interconnectivity. This was set up all the way back in their first post credit scene. It's Avengers Assemble, not Avengers Do Your Own Thing. And while this set them apart from the competition, it also set them back a bit. Every pro has a con. Obviously, it's not a ton since they keep making all the monies. All the release date announcements and phases and crossover films turned each individual film into nothing more than a glorified trailer for the next film. Okay, that, that might be a little harsh, but in, in large part, a lot of their movies spend most of their runtime kind of setting up more than focusing on the story at hand. More and more scenes became less about the story at hand and more about the story to be told in the coming movies. Age of Ultron is the biggest culprit of this. The conflict with Ultron is constantly stopped in order for the audience to get a tease for Ragnarok or for scenes that build motivations for a spat between Tony and Cap for Civil War. And speaking of Civil War, that dedicates a good slice of its runtime to introducing one of Marvel's biggest heroes, Spider-Man. And speaking of Spider-Man, the biggest complaints for Tom Holland's turn as the webbed hero is that his Spider-Man is too dependent on Tony Stark and never has time to become his own person. Again, I don't want to make it sound like this is an awful thing. After all, Marvel explicitly wants to tell stories this way and the audience expects it. And the audience, for the most part, is on board. Marvel is a giant TV show. There's nothing wrong with that. It's totally fine. But after a while, it becomes tiring all these characters defeat a bad guy who exists to set up a bigger bad guy, but Volume 2, yet again, feels like a breath of fresh air. Peter's, not Spider-Man Spider Peter, but Peter Quill, his internal struggle has nothing to do with any upcoming Marvel movies. His antagonist has nothing to do with Thanos. It's purely personal. The themes that work here hit harder because they are introduced and resolved all within the film's runtime. You don't need to watch an upcoming crossover film to see how Peter reconciles his family pain or how he grows from this experience. It's also refreshing how every other character's journey runs through the same themes and questions that Peter is dealing with. It's all connected. Yondu is caught between familial loyalties. He still seeks approval from the Ravagers even when they want him to want him to betray Peter. He is chased by guilt about his past, the same as Rocket. Drax and Gamora also come from broken families. Volume 2 gives each character space to internalize and process this pain. When, when Peter Quill is, is struggling with the choice between, you know, family blood or this new adopted family that he's found, Drax, Gamora, Rocket, they're all doing the same thing. They're all trying to reconcile this idea of forgetting your DNA, forgetting the sins of your father, and choosing the family in front of you, choosing your friends and family, and accepting that love. They're all struggling with that. And it and it leads to that, that resolution, that conclusion, where they all come to that decision at the same time, and it just hits harder that way. And just as Peter recognizes that lineage will not save him, that the answer to where he comes from doesn't determine his future, and decides to save his new family, his fellow guardians also make that same choice. They all learn that you choose your family. You choose how much or how little the past determines your future. 
And, you know, as much as a tough guy as I am, I want to cry every time Yandu says, he may have been your father boy, but he wasn't your daddy. And he said it way better than I just did there. Because the entire movie was focused on working towards that very revelation. The reason it hits so hard when Yandu says that again is because the whole movie was building up to that. Yandu's sacrifice has meaning precisely because he's not coming back. Again, there's there's been a few deaths in the MCU and especially the ones before that one, kind of felt hollow. And the reason for that is because it was final. He chose not to be defined by his past. And, and the death happened at a moment where Yandu's character learns and grows and, and makes a decision that has impact on who he is. Like you think about um, Quicksilver dying in Ultron. That death was really just there, just so the fight had some sort of stakes, but... In terms of Quicksilver's character, it didn't really mean much, but the reason Yandu's sacrifice hits so hard is because it comes right at the moment where he finally comes to accept who he is, his past, and his role as Peter's kind of adopted father, and that all hits at the same time and it adds emotion and weight to it. There's nothing he could do in some other Avengers movie that would be more powerful than that moment. The ending of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 works because it is focused, again focused, on being precisely that, an ending. Sure, the gang is coming back for Volume 3, but the specific internal struggles Ego's presence brought have been dealt with. Something new awaits in Volume 3, and because of that, I can't wait. Revisiting other Marvel films can be a little exhausting. When the credits roll, I feel like I need to watch four more films just to resolve what happened in the final frames. But the Guardians movies don't have that same problem for me. Each time I revisit them, especially Volume 2, I'm rewarded with colorful, playful visuals and a story that builds to a focused moment of catharsis. So yeah, talking about Marvel can be difficult, and hopefully I didn't anger anybody or step on anyone's toes there. There are somehow twice as many opinions as there are films, but when it comes to all the things and moments I love in Volume 2, well, I'll never get tired of talking about that. So, there it is. That is my argument as to why I think Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is the best Marvel movie. Um, I'm totally open to you guys having a totally different pick. Um, I think that's what makes it fun is when people have different opinions. Um, so, please leave a comment, um, maybe an iTunes review, or leave a comment um, on my social media, wherever you can. Let me know what your favorite Marvel movie is and why, and maybe why you think I'm stupid. Uh, but yeah, that is my kind of apologetic for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. If you haven't seen it since it first came out, I really suggest you go and rewatch it. I, I know one of the critiques of Volume 2 is that the pacing is a little laid back at times. It's kind of like a hangout movie for most of the runtime. And I know that can be a little disarming when you first watch it. But at least for me, every time I've rewatched it, I've actually come to enjoy that more and more. And, and enjoy the fact that a lot of the movie in the first two acts is, is more character driven. And a lot of that character work is kind of subtle at first. So I think a rewatch um, will help that. And you'll since you know where the story's going, you can kind of enjoy the way he's setting up all those character tensions. And uh, there's some of the funniest moments in that movie like that section where um, where Baby Groot is trying to find the, I think it's the keys to the cell 
that rocket's locked in and he keeps bringing the wrong thing and they're trying to communicate no go get this and he like grabs a guy's ear it, some of the funniest scenes um in the mcu right there um again because the comedy is character centric and not just line centric i think a lot of the jokes in the mcu are trying to be executed purely on like the words of the joke like the joke itself whereas in guardians i think james gunn does a really good job of making the jokes work because of who the characters are they're character centric especially with like drax and uh, how literal he is um so yeah so if you haven't if you havenven't seen it in a while i definitely recommend uh re-watching it um if you want and let me know report back what you think but yeah there we go shorter episode today just me <laughs> hopefully an episode with just me and no evan wasn't uh terrible hopefully it didn't make you want to swerve into traffic uh, hopefully it was okay. Uh, hey, maybe you want to hear more of this stuff. Maybe a, a, a solo Evan episode. I don't know. Let us know. But with that being said, like I mentioned earlier, Evan and I are going to get some more episodes out there. Hopefully we can check out some more movies um, and do some commentaries for you all. And be on the lookout for my new video essay on The Man Who Fell to Earth. That will be dropping hopefully in the coming week. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, see you later.